Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We were at the bar for Connor's 22nd birthday when the world first began to fall apart. It started with an absurdly small detail. I ordered two blue moons for us like always, but he picked the orange slice off the rim of his glass with a frown. I looked down at the one on my glass and asked, Something wrong? His frown momentarily changed to a look of disgust. I hate oranges. That was odd, since it had been our ritual since his 21st birthday to always get that brand together when we were at our bar because... Fruit's good for you, therefore this beer is healthy. But it was his birthday and he could do what he wanted, so I didn't ask about it. Rebecca, however, already had a few. She cut past the group conversation to proclaim, But isn't the orange the healthiest part? Connor shook his head. No way. Oranges are gross. Across the table, Dan said, Oranges are great, man. They're nature's candy. Rebecca's older sister, Shannon, was with us that night. She countered, no, beets are nature's candy. When we stared at her blankly, she asked, Doug, you know the Nickelodeon show Doug with the dog Porkchop, best friend Skeeter? Everyone in that world loved beets. When we only vaguely recalled the show she was talking about, she threw her hands out in defeat. Near us, an older regular was watching a television above the bar. He sneered. (laughs) Man... I'll tell you what's wrong with this country. It's them. He pointed at the screen. I hate him. Around him, fellow regulars cheered, and he grinned with pride. He held his hands up high and said, Round of shots for the whole bar on me. And that was all I really remembered of the first nights things began to unravel. After that, my memories got blurry, and I woke up under a villainous beam of sunlight with an overwhelming nausea and a killer headache. My first mighty act of willpower was to close the blinds and hide us from the monstrous sun. Dan was on the floor of my room under my computer table, and Rebecca was in the hallway, swaddled in every single blanket the house had to offer. With relief, I saw that Connor was popped up on his bed by an array of pillows that kept him on his side. A trash can below him was filled halfway up with vomit, and Shannon sat in the corner on her phone. Upon seeing me, she said, Oh, does your head hurt? Good. He's all yours now. I'm going home and going to sleep. I was left to take care of the birthday boy, which admittedly was much easier now that he was half awake. The one thing I did ask him during his stupor was, Do you really hate oranges? Always have, man, he groaned. And I was left feeling as if our roommate ritual for the entire last year had been some weird sort of lie that he'd grown tired of carrying on. I stewed on that feeling for the rest of the day. What if he didn't really consider me a friend? What if he was just humoring me because we were just roommates? 
It felt as if my entire position in the group was in jeopardy, as if the way I thought of myself was under threat. It was a gnawing, lonely, and terrible feeling that kept me up all Sunday night. On Monday, I downed the coffee and sat morosely at my computer. This was my first job after graduation, and I was finding it unfulfilling. Did we even do any real work? While my coworkers spend most of the day huddled around a meeting room television watching the news, I could only think about the orange issue. By the end of the workday, I decided to cave. I was the first one at the bar that evening, and Dan sat next to me about 20 minutes later. He looked at my stout and said, No blue moon today? I, uh, hate oranges. I lied with a grimace. To my surprise, he said, Me too. That was weird. Didn't you just say they were nature's candy? Not even close. He looked to be rather offended. Oranges are the highest carrier of disease amongst all fruit and vegetables. Mortified, I asked. Seriously? He folded his arms. Yeah, absolutely disgusting fruit. It was a bold enough claim that I put down my stout and picked up my phone. After a few searches, I began to grow very confused. Citrus greening, citrus canker, citrus black spot, gross. Sweet orange scab? How have I never heard of any of these diseases before? The pictures were horrifying. Oh, but wait, these only affect oranges and aren't dangerous to humans. Dan just shrugged. Science says a lot of things are safe, then suddenly they find out they're not. I'm not eating anything that looks like that. I didn't agree with him, but the images had still unsettled me. Maybe there was a reason to avoid oranges after all. The rest of the gang showed up soon after, but the disturbing images never really left my awareness. Later that night, as we all spilled out of an Uber in front of my place, we were laughing and joking again as normal. And I was starting to feel a little better. I'd overblown the whole issue, really. There was nothing to worry about. These people didn't secretly hate me, and I did belong. Across the street, one guy began yelling angrily at another. The Uber pulled away, removing the barrier between our group and the guys. And then we saw them push at each other, scream back and forth, and then begin trading punches. This was a nice college-age neighborhood where nothing of the sort had ever happened before. What were they thinking? We stared until they noticed us. Abruptly, they stalked off and returned to their separate houses next to each other. They were neighbors. <laughs> How ridiculous, Connor said with a laugh before leading us inside. We'll have to make sure not to invite them over next time we have a party. He didn't seem to be in any sort of deceptive or bad mood. So once we were all sitting around in the kitchen drinking water, I took the opportunity to ask him about what had been bothering me. Yeah, I do hate oranges, he told me. You'll never catch me eating the damn things. They're like the biggest carrier of disease amongst all fruits and vegetables. Never, I joked. What about the last year of us getting blue moons? He tilted his head at that. I never get that beer. It comes with an orange slice, and I hate oranges. That's when it finally occurred to me that something was seriously wrong. Either with my memory or with the world. No longer smiling, I said, 
We've been getting that beer every time we go out since your birthday last year when that hot girl that night thought your joke about it being healthy was hilarious. His expression darkened. That never happened. I don't drink Blue Moon. That's how I remember it. I insisted flatly. (laughs) Then your memory's messed up. He retorted, growing strangely angry. He balled up a fist between us. I never drink that shit. I never have. You have to stop saying that shit now. Oranges are disgusting. Rebecca and Dan watched us in awkward silence. I figured I had one more back and forth within the bounds of politeness. I decided to make it count. Dan, you remember getting us the orange slices with our beer, don't you? Dan stiffened in his chair. Uh, don't bring me into this. I hate oranges too. Always have. I wouldn't hang out with people who didn't. I stared at him. What? What the hell does that mean? Since when is this such a big deal? I turned to Rebecca. You remember, don't you? That whole exchange with your sister about oranges versus beets on Saturday night? She kept her eyes on her water and did not reply. Connor stood and approached me with menace. Look, man, you've been a good friend for a long time, but you're going to have to cut this shit out if you want to keep hanging with us. Was he serious? How could he possibly be serious? I looked to Rebecca and Dan, but neither one met my confused gaze. I was just joking, I finally told Connor. You know, messing with you guys. His face immediately lit up. (laughs) Oh, damn, you got me good. Oh, yeah. I laughed with him, secretly terrified. Rebecca and Dan finally looked up, relieved and the mood immediately went back to happy and carefree. I hung out and pretended to be normal until everyone finally went to bed. Rebecca in her room downstairs and Dan and Connor in the hallway next to my room before I finally had a chance to investigate. For the first time in months, I closed and locked my door. The wonderful atmosphere that our house was full of friends had started with was now one of fear and suspicion. I sat in the dark in front of my computer and began to scour the internet in search of answers. I'd seen enough science fiction to hazard a few guesses. Was I in the wrong reality somehow? Was my timeline changing for some reason? I didn't know enough about the particulars about history to see if anything was different on Wikipedia. No. This was my room. My credit card worked, and my social security number was correct. If reality or time had changed in even the slightest way, those randomly generated numbers would have been different. This was my world, just changing for some reason. And because of that small and utterly inconsequential change, my home life and friends group were on the line. Was I going crazy? The only conclusion left was that I was the problem. Something was wrong with my memory or belief that had left me at odds with those I cared about. Just then, as I sat in the dark, I heard my doorknob turn and fail to open since I'd locked it. Someone had just tried to come into my room, and something told me it wasn't for cuddling. It had been a subtle and stealthy attempt. On a horrified hunch, I quickly and quietly opened my window and slid out into the night. 
Five houses down, I saw a roof ablaze. Someone's house was on fire. What the hell was happening? But I couldn't worry about that at that particular moment. Peering at another window, I saw a silhouette of a darker darkness move near a gleam of metal. Someone is just trying to come into my room. With a knife. Silhouette disappeared into deeper shadow, leaving me with no identity beyond the fact that it had to have been one of my roommates. How in the ever-blazing hell had a like or dislike of oranges come to such a point? This was not normal. This was not natural. Crouched out there in the chilly night, illuminated only by the house fire five lots distant, I was forced to face the only conclusion left. Something supernatural was going on. As soon as I truly entertained that notion, the firelit darkness felt suddenly far less solitary. Were eyes upon me? Was something watching me even then? I found it hard to believe that hating oranges was the primary goal of whatever was happening, rather just the side effect of a slowly creeping insanity or possession of some sort. There was nothing to do about it in that particular moment. I didn't feel safe outside, but I didn't feel safe back in my room either. I barricaded the door and windows and found only the least satisfying half-awake form of sleep. In that odd mix of dreaming and waking, images of diseased fruit tortured my awareness. I didn't get a chance to catch Rebecca alone until Wednesday. She was the first to show up at the bar that evening, like Dan had been on Monday, but she seemed uncomfortable and apprehensive. After she looked over her shoulder for the third time at the entrance to the bar, I asked quietly, Are you afraid to? Her gaze spoke volumes. She bit her lip, looked at the door again, then told me, Just stop screwing around with the oranges thing, alright? What is the oranges thing? I demanded in a whisper. What is going on? Half panicked at my questions, she insisted. Just tell them you hate oranges, alright? Just fucking tell them you hate oranges. Stop asking about it, stop poking at it. I like my life, I like you guys, I like my house. Stop disrupting everything. I grabbed her hand as it lay upon the table between us. I just want to understand. Where did this hatred for oranges even come from? What is going on that's making our roommates act like this? She finally looked me in the eyes, and I saw bloodshot exhaustion there. Wait, I whispered. You've been sleeping poorly, too. Bad dreams? Her eyes opened a little wider. She went to speak, but she saw someone come in the back door of the bar and quickly pulled her hand away from mine. Connor fell upon me rather forcefully from behind, but only to wrap his arm around my shoulder and neck. Oh, what are you two lovebirds up to? He knew we weren't a thing anymore. What was his problem? Following the cue from Rebecca's masked terror, I just said, just talking about how much we hate oranges, bro. Connor jerked his neck toward her. Is that so, Rebecca? She didn't speak. She just forced a smile and nodded weakly. Awesome, awesome, he said with a genuine relief. He let go of me and sat between us. I knew you two would come around. Dan arrived soon after, complaining of a vendor selling oranges he'd seen on the way over. Grossest pile of disease you've ever seen. 
He shuddered. I looked to Rebecca, but she silently warned me just to go with it. And I did. For the next hour, I carefully observed Dan and Connor, trying to figure out what was going on with them. It wasn't until I went up to the bar to get Rebecca and myself more drinks that I saw something that chilled my soul. A girl took a picture of three of her friends to my left. The angle was such that my table was in the background. While waiting for the drinks, I happened to glance at her phone. My table was indeed in the background. There was Rebecca, there was Dan, there was Connor, and someone else. I only saw her phone for an instant before she turned away, but I was certain enough to surreptitiously turn around and pretend I was texting while I angled my camera at my friends. There, among the crowded patrons of the bar, and shown in only choppy frame-by-frame rendering, was the shadow of a person bent down near Connor's ear. As I stared at my phone, paralyzed in terror, that shadow head tilted up as if it was looking at me with concern. Rather than react and get myself away, I shouted to my friends, Picture time! The silhouette turned a half-step and vanished as if a gust of wind had dissipated in one fell swoop. My friends smiled and made faces. The flash irritated a new surrounding patrons, but I'd gotten away with it. There was something among us. Holy Christ, a little shadow whispering in Connor's ear, murmuring insidious words of hatred, no doubt. But why oranges? That Wednesday night at 8.42 p.m. EST, a runaway car crashed into the front of the bar, smashing all the windows and killing a woman. I know the exact time because the police forced us all to give statements before we could go. We'd been across the entire bar and had only seen the aftermath, really, but I was still pretty unhelpful. All I could think about was the shadow lurking among us. As the Uber pulled onto our street that night, I absently studied the blackened shell of the house that had caught on fire five lots down. It was still smoldering, and it looked like nobody had come to put it out. In fact, it looked like nobody lived there at all. Looking left and right, I noticed that half of the houses on our street had no cars in their driveway. We weren't so fancy as to have garages. Was the lurking shadow driving people away? Why hadn't anyone said anything? Were they even conscious of the shift in tone of our community? It had been the best time of my life until suddenly neighbors were getting in fistfights in broad daylight, my roommates had developed a random weird hatred, and houses were burning down without anyone calling the fire department. We sat in silence around the kitchen table for at least ten minutes, shaken by the car crash that had killed someone across the bar. Rebecca finally spoke. She murmured, I hate oranges too. Dan and Connor moved to her and hugged her tight. It's alright. You're one of us. We'll always be here for you. As they held her, they glanced at me a few times, and I joined the huddle to avoid starting another fight. I wondered if the shadow was there with us, embracing us the way we were embracing Rebecca. I could even feel the issue clouding my mind. Did I eat oranges, too? I mean, everyone else did. And those pictures of diseased oranges were disgusting. Had I really liked orange slices with my beer this whole last year? 
If I had, I might have just been horribly mistaken. Misled, even, by beer advertisements. Those ads never said anything about the diseases oranges could catch. That was odd, wasn't it? It was like they didn't want me to know. It would hurt their sales for me to know. These thoughts plagued me that night and all the next day. At work on Thursday while my co-workers randomly cried in their cubicles or had hushed discussions that broke up as soon as the manager neared, I sat on my computer and researched paranormal possessions and hauntings. One of the things I learned was that demonic beings, that is, entities from a religious sphere of ideas, hated signs of God and good and tried to get those they were trying to possess to destroy crosses and pour out holy water and the like. That made sense. But if the being haunting my friends, my house, and my street was not from a religious sphere, but perhaps a different space, what if oranges were a representation of the things that made it vulnerable? If this was some sort of anti-nature spirit, maybe it was pouring hatred of oranges into my community because oranges could drive it away. But that was crazy. I actually laughed out loud in my cubicle as I internalized the idea and one of my crying co-workers looked at me like I was a monster. Oh, sorry, I told her, grimacing awkwardly. I was just thinking about something else. She glared and rotated away in her chair. Thursday night was in one of our usual bar nights, so I was at home when Rebecca's older sister Shannon stopped by. It was for something trivial, but on the way out, I caught her on the porch. I needed reassurance. Hey, Shannon, you remember that whole conversation about oranges versus beets last Saturday? She rolled her eyes. Yeah? What about it? And gold. So, that did happen. Yeah. And Connor and I have been joking about orange slices for the last year? Narrowing her eyes, she said, Yes, why? I don't know. I told her truthfully. I'm just starting to doubt my own reality. I had to be sure. She scrolled through Facebook on her phone and showed me a picture. Look, it's the two of you on his 21st birthday last year when I was a designated driver, as usual. In the picture, we were both holding our beers forward, orange slices on full display. The hot girl who had sparked the entire tradition was sitting next to Connor, exactly like I remembered. It's real. I looked up at her. How do you feel about oranges? She grimaced, but not out of disgust. What? Why? It tastes alright, I guess. Seriously, what's your opinion on oranges, beyond just whether you personally like their taste? Neutral? She replied. I literally don't care. Why would anyone have an opinion on oranges unless they're like a botanist or a farmer or something? That was an incredible point, actually. I I wish I knew. As she turned to leave, we began to hear a commotion at the end of the street, closer to campus. We were only a few blocks away from campus and still close enough that street vendors often passed this way. When I saw an older man pushing a cart of oranges being surrounded by a group of my peers shouting profanities, I knew exactly what was happening. And I could see Dan and Connor among them.
Rebecca came out onto the porch at hearing the violent shouting, and the three of us stood staring as the mob began to push at the unfortunate cart owner. We stared, running toward the fray after Dan sent a wild punch, and the man fell. The mob was screaming with furious bloodlust and stomping in mass by the time we got there. But the cart owner was fine, if shaken. The mob was stomping his oranges. It was some eerie, otherworldly version of a group murder. Bits of orange peel flew this way and that with the force of the stomping blow, and the fruit juice splattered across clothes in every direction. The gore would have been vomit-inducing had it been human. As it was, I was still mortified by what was happening. These people, my friends and neighbors, had become rabid animals full of irrational hate. Shannon looked at me in confused askance. I shook my head. I had no idea. But Rebecca, terrified as she was, chose to join in. Running forward, she started screaming profanities and stomping on the last of the oranges while the others began cheering. Soon they would notice that we'd not joined in. Shannon, you better go. She took my advice immediately and began walking away toward her car. Covered in the juice blood of his victims, Connor glared at me with the eyes of a devil. Why aren't you helping? I got here too late. I lied lamely. Dan, his gaze red with anger, fixated on me as well. There's one left. He held his arms out. Everybody leave that one. He pointed down. Come on. I needed to buy time for Shannon to escape, but I also knew I had to live with and sleep near these people. The thought of that silhouette with the knife promised no good end for anyone that defied that group. It might have been the shadow itself that had picked up the knife, but it also might not have been. The cart owner looked at me in terror from down on the sidewalk as I approached his last orange. Please... No, why do you do this? Why do you do this? I just sell oranges. Please, no. I closed my eyes and stopped. The orange splattered under my shoe and arms grasped me from every angle as my neighbors jeered and cheered. I opened my eyes and shook with shame as the cart owner got up and ran off. Dan lit a match and set the wooden cart on fire while the others began dancing. I had no choice but to dance with them. They wouldn't let go of me. They shook me and made me chant with them and tested me constantly to make sure I wasn't faking. To get through it, I had to temporarily convince myself they were right and that oranges were an abomination. To get through it, I had to give up a part of myself, and after I returned to my room, blocked the door and sat crying under my computer table. But then, I got angry. I got mad. I was not going to let my community be consumed by this madness. The entity whispering in our ears would pay. I was a man, goddammit, no longer a boy, and I didn't have to grin and bear it. These people weren't my parents. I got in my car and drove the way the car owner had gone. I found him five blocks down, forlorn and sitting at a city bus stop. He began to panic as he saw me, but I held up my hands peacefully and asked him a question that immediately changed his mood. I didn't make enough to save any money, but I had a credit card. 
I bought the entire rest of his inventory and took it all home with me. When the crates didn't fit, I just plain dumped the oranges in my trunk and back seat. My car would smell like fruit for months, I was sure, but it had to be done. When Dan got home that night, I caught him behind the front door and held a knife to his throat. Sit down, I directed, tying him up in a chair in the kitchen. He shouted when Connor got home, but it was too late. I put Connor in a chair, too, and tied him up. Then I stuffed clean socks in their mouths so they wouldn't warn Rebecca. I didn't grab her. I didn't tie her up. I simply held the knife and said, sit. She nervously took the third chair. I'd thrown the oranges from my car all about the kitchen. They were on the table, on the floor, in the sink. I picked one at random, peeled off the skin, and held it in front of Connor. Eat it. Why don't you make me? He spat. I won't, I told him. But I also won't let you out of this chair until you take a bite of this goddamn orange. They're disgusting. We used to eat them all the time. That didn't happen. It did. I showed him the picture on my phone from his birthday the year before. He frowned. Is that photoshopped? It happened. I screamed in his face. Eat the orange! He pulled his head away. They're the highest carriers of disease among all... Yes, I know the soundbite, I yelled. It's wrong. Those diseases aren't dangerous to humans, and this orange isn't diseased. Eat the orange! But we hate oranges, Connor insisted, indignant. Right, guys? Dan bit down on the sock in his mouth. Mm Mm-hmm. Connor looked at Rebecca. About to cry, she hid her face and did not respond. Connor seemed more shaken after that. After gulping down hesitation, he warily took a bite from the orange. He blinked. Oh, it's... it's fine. Dan seemed surprised, and Rebecca just cried harder. I pulled the sock out of Dan's mouth and held the other side of the orange. Try it. If you hate it, that's fine. I'll let you go either way. Just try it. Seeing Connor break, Dan hesitantly tried to bite and then pushed back in his chair. Doesn't taste like I remember. I swear it used to have a horrible antiseptic taste. No, I told him. Our heads are being messed with. We just attacked a street vendor and stomped on his oranges because we've been worked up in a frenzy of hate. Does that make any sense to you, objectively? Blinking as if waking up from a dream, Dan began to look horrified. Oh my god, we did do that, didn't we? What were we thinking? Connor looked up at me with the same guilt. Oh man, I... He cut off as his eyes jumped to something behind me. That warning gave me just enough time to shift to the side. The knife went into my left shoulder and I slipped on rolling oranges and fell to the floor on top of a splatter of my own blood. Above me, I could see a knife dripping with red and the shadow of a man beyond it. Its hollow eyes were red. Dan and Connor began screaming and fighting their bonds as the shadow stepped near, but I tied them in too well. The shadow's red eyes moved from me to their squirming bodies as if it was deciding which of us to kill first. What do you want? I screamed at it. What the fuck do you want? Those red eyes swung to me and seemed to bore into my soul. A sinister chill 
raked across my senses as it whispered, Buy lemons. I stared. Buy lemons? I hesitated. Why would you even care about that? I don't, it rasped, bringing the knife nearer. It is simply what my master wishes. It couldn't be so absurd as that, could it? Had some lemon farming company hired a demon worshipper and summoned an entity from beyond our world just for profit? Had they brought the incarnation of hate among us just to make money? But it was that simple. It had always been that simple. Why else would anyone do anything? It moved to stab me, but Rebecca leapt against it and a piece of the shadow tore out where she passed. It screamed in pain, dropped the bloody knife and grasped the hole she'd made. Darkness sifted out of its wound like black sand falling from a sideways hourglass. It flared its red eyes, hissed venom and vanished. It had gone. The demon that had been among us and whispering in our ears all week had gone. We all remained frozen in shock for 30 seconds before Dan snapped out of it and said loudly, Would someone please untie me already? We did, and then we patched up my arm. As a group, we didn't know what to do, so we went and sat at our regular table at the bar. It was early on a Thursday, so few other people were there. We didn't get blue moons, but not because we hated oranges. No, our house was full of hundreds of the fruit, and it would smell forever. I can't believe it almost got us to go from loving oranges to hating them in less than a week. Connor murmured sadly, crouching over his drink. I shook my head. I even doubted myself there for a minute. Did things I'm not proud of. Dan looked up at us. What even hurt it? Why did a being of hate get wounded by Rebecca just moving through it? She looked at me. I looked at her. We both looked back down at our beers. She hadn't just moved through it. She'd jumped at it because of me. We both knew the answer, but that was private. Near us, an older regular was watching a television above the bar. He sneered. Man, I'll tell you what's wrong with this country. I hate the four of us shouted in unison. He jumped in his chair and looked over at us. Don't, I told him calmly and sadly. Please, just don't. He watched us for a moment, then, subtly embarrassed, he gave a slow, haunted nod and turned back to his drink. A few years ago, I was working as a deckhand on an Alaskan fishing boat. From a young age, my parents instilled in me a strong work ethic. They always said hard work leads to greater returns, so I naturally gravitated toward a career that shared that philosophy. Alaskan fishing added high risk to the equation, and in turn, the rewards were even sweeter. I couldn't imagine doing anything else, and plans on working my way up to captain one day. This story takes place during my fifth crabbing season. By then, I knew the ropes, I was familiar with the waters, and I'd witnessed a few deaths firsthand. I thought I was prepared for anything. 
and I was dead wrong. We were a crew of 15, myself included. When the season began, the number would be halved by the time we returned to shore, and I would be left incapable of setting foot anywhere near the ocean ever again. I was sailing on the Seaward Sarah, a vessel that was getting a little long in the tooth, but was known for her reliability. Since she'd passed her safety inspection earlier that year, I had no concerns as we left port for the cold waters of North Pacific Ocean. It was exhilarating to be on the sea again, with the fresh, salty breeze and waters so vast you couldn't see anything but blue for miles around. The spirits were high, and the excitement of starting on a new journey was electric. We always hold a party on the first and last nights. It was tradition. Even the captain would join in and dance and sing and drink. We noticed the first sign of trouble two days into the journey. The Seaward Sarah was listing on her starboard side. It wasn't at a dangerous angle, and after consulting with the ship's engineer, the captain determined it was safe to proceed further into the North Pacific Ocean. He planned on bouncing around once we started loading crabs into the cargo decks. We'll overfill the port cargo and underfill the starboard. I didn't question the plan. It seemed reasonable, and besides, I was just a deckhand. The captain could piss in my mouth, tell me it was wine, and I'd smile and agree. It's the way it works at sea. I grew more concerned as the voyage went on. The list worsened over the course of the next week. It went from a barely noticeable incline to my calves burning from stringing against the pole of gravity towards starboard. That's when the captain started making a lot of calls. I couldn't hear what was going on, but I could see him shouting into the receiver, his face getting redder and angrier as the days wore on. I was told he was cursing everyone from the ship manufacturer to the inspectors to the contractors who'd last done repair work on our hull. I was told it was business as usual. One evening, when most of us were gathered in the dining hall, holding our plates and glasses to keep them from sliding down the table, the captain burst in and announced we were turning around. Our reactions were mixed, with some experiencing relief and others disappointment. No one knew what this meant for our wages or whether the repairs could be done in time to get back at sea before the end of crab season. Me? I was one who was relieved by the news. The vast ocean I'd been yearning for for months had become progressively more unsettling as the ship tilted. I became keenly aware of just how far away I was from dry land, from safety. This place I found freeing suddenly felt like a cage, and I wandered out. I felt the seaward Sarah turn as I headed back to the crew quarters, and I used the wall for support. The combination of the dime and turn and the ship's tilt were terrible for my equilibrium. I needed to lay down and let myself adjust. I don't know what would have happened if the storm hadn't hit later that night. Would the seaward Sarah have limped home safely? Would she have rolled over along the way? I'll never know now because the storm did hit. 
one that seemed to come out of nowhere, barely being caught by the radar before its waves and rain started pelting the ship with a fury of angry sea god. The seaward Sarah groaned in pain as her list worsened even more. Doors flew open, objects fell and hit me as I staggered up the hall and toward the deck. I didn't realize just how bad it had gotten until I felt my feet touch the wall and realized the wall was becoming the floor. I was still inside when I heard the call to abandon ship. I was bruised, groggy, and disoriented. Enough water had gotten in from somewhere that I was also soaked. I felt a pair of hands grab me by the shoulder and usher me forward when I stopped to take a breath. I know at some point I donned a life vest, but I couldn't tell you when or how I got it on. All I remember is the surreal sensation of the world changing directions inside the ship and the sight of tall waves illuminated by lightning once outside. Thunder drowned out the screams of my shipmates, but I could see them scrambling to launch a lifeboat. I threw myself toward them, but before I could catch a handhold, I felt a wall of ice-cold water drag me into the railing. A second wave, the reaction to its action, reached over the rail and pulled me into the water. Pain was unbearable. Not only had I been tossed around like a ragdoll, but the water felt like I'd rolled into a vat of quicksand made by sharp needles. I didn't know which side was up and which was down, but thankfully, the life vest lifted me back to the turbulent surface. The water had gotten into my ears, muffling the sound of the storm, and I tried to flail my arms, hoping for rescue, but I couldn't lift them. I couldn't stop threading water long enough. This hell went on for longer than I care to reflect on. I just know wave after wave pulled me under. But the jackets always brought me back up and long enough to catch my breath. When I close my eyes, even years later, I can still feel the unrelenting assault of the waves mingling with the taste of salt on my tongue. I was going to die. I was sure of it either by not breathing in when I had a chance or by drowning from rainwater in my mouth whenever I screamed. And then I felt a tug, and my horror amplified tenfold as I imagined being in the jaws of a sea serpent about to pull me into the ocean depths. I thrashed desperately trying to escape, only to hear Greta's voice chastising me. Stop, Tad, I'm trying to pull you in. Greta hoisted me onto the lifeboat, and once I was over the edge, I slipped the rest of the way in, landing in wet and bloody water. I could hear orders being shouted at me, but all I could do was curl up and wait, utterly useless. I know the others were preoccupied by something as they started rowing as hard as they could. In hindsight, I think they were trying to get clear of the whirlpool of the sinking ship. The storm passed almost as quickly as it arrived. The ocean wasn't as quick to calm, but the turbulence lessened to a manageable degree. When I was finally able to, I sat up and took inventory of my surroundings. I found myself in a lifeboat with seven other crewmates. All that was left of the seaward Sarah were bubbles rising from the depths of the ocean. Miraculously, there was a second lifeboat paddling toward us, and once we connected... We were overjoyed to find that every single crew member had survived the capsizing. The captain, who was on the other raft, shouted over the water in a deep, booming voice, 
We sent out a distress call before she went down. They have our coordinates. It won't be long. I hoped he was right, because my hands were trembling from the cold and the quickly depleting adrenaline. We tied the rafts together, took stock of our supplies, food, first aid, and then waited. Now, you would think that there'd be cheering when the light appeared on the horizon, that all hands would start to paddle and wave and celebrate. Instead, there was a sudden and deathly silence as a communal swell of anxiety filtered into us. There were haunting expressions on Greta and John and Sarai and even the captain's faces. The latter was holding the flare gun, but his finger was tapping nervously on the trigger. Sometimes without knowing why, you get a bad feeling. People call it a sixth sense, but I think it's simpler than that. I think it's dangers perceived but bypassed by the brain so you can act faster than you can think. Kind of like how you can actively analyze a person's body language to get more information than you'd get from them hearing their words alone, but even if you're not trying to, you still subconsciously notice the little signs showing discomfort or anger or attraction. It's innate. What we think we perceive is only scratching the surface of all the information we truly take in. The brain, our consciousness, focuses on one thing, but our survival instinct notices the other discrepancies. And when it does, it signals danger without telling you why. It's not moving, Greta whispered. She hit the nail on the head. She connected the dots outlining the proverbial red flag. When she did, a sort of unspoken acknowledgement traveled through the group as one by one we noticed it too. You see, there were two problems with the light. The nearest ship to ours was at least another five hours away, probably longer if they hit the same storm we had. And second, the light was perfectly still staying at the same height and never once bobbing along with the ocean surge. It also wasn't sweeping the ocean, as one does when searching for survivors. You see, it had appeared way too fast. Only about a half hour after the storm had passed. It was extremely unlikely that an unknown ship had been in the area, we all try to keep tabs on one another because in such turbulent waters, knowing where everyone is is a question of life and death. Yes, we're technically all competing against one another, but you'd be hard-pressed to find any seaman unwilling to drop everything to save another in a pinch. There's a code of honor we all follow. But suppose... This was an unknown vessel responding to our distress call. We still had to contend with the second issue of its unnatural immobility. My stomach contorted, wondering what it meant. This light was fixed on a single point in the near distance. It was glowing, no, pulsating, but it never once moved on any sort of axis like it should if it were searching the water, and it was immune to the push and pull of the ocean waves. 
There's not a ship on Earth that can do that. The only reasonable explanation was it might be a Coast Guard helicopter hovering perfectly in place and dangerously low. But then again, even if it had been deployed the second the distress call was sent, a rescue chopper couldn't have gotten to us that fast. The light acted like a lure, goading us to come into it. The boom of an explosion snapped me to reality, and it was followed by a crackle up above. The captain had fired off one of the flares. It hung in the air, slowly fizzling in a downward arch. I remember feeling so scared, I dug my fingers into the lifeboat. The shot was one thing, but my fear had to do with the light. I was so afraid it would come closer now that it knew for sure we were there. I was more afraid of that light than I've ever been anything in my entire life. Thankfully, it stayed away. Row! The captain ordered. No one moved. Not even to breathe. Row, damn it! John reached for the paddle, but Greta grabbed him by the forearm and stopped him, shaking her head. The captain glared at us with bulging eyes. He'd adopted an authoritative stance, but even he wasn't able to suppress his quakes of fear. If one followed logic, he was right. We should head towards the light. And yet, the longer we stared at the unwavering thing, the more it unsettled us. It's funny how something as simple as bobbing up and down could have alleviated our anxiety, but the light didn't do that. Not even once. Faced with a soft mutiny, the captain grumbled and grabbed a paddle of his own. Fine, he hissed. I'll go. Any man or woman too cowardly to come can transfer to the coward drive. He gestured to us. Anyone with balls, come with me. We need to flag that ship down before it moves without us. The flare hit the waters and spat out a few more dying embers. I was surprised to see a few crewmates get up. John and a couple others transferred over to the captain's raft. An equal number transferred to the coward's raft. With contempt on his sour, sea-worn face, the captain cut the lines between us and directed his raft toward the searchlight. Even as they rode off, we pleaded with them not to go. But it was like they'd been infected with bravado. I could hear them chanting in rhythm, left, right, left, right, until they were a blip on the horizon. Ten minutes after the voices went quiet, at the estimated time the captain's raft would have reached the light, it suddenly blinked out of existence. The captain, John, and the other five crewmates. They were never seen or heard from again. The raft has never turned up. This, despite being outfitted with an emergency tracker, planes equipped with the same tech have gone missing as well. So it could be that those trackers aren't worth much, but it still gives me nightmares to think what would have happened to me if we'd followed the captain. As for the rest of us, it took seven hours. But eventually we were rescued by the crew of the Rose Shannon. As expected, the storm had delayed rescue attempts. 
They warmed us up and combed the waters where we'd last seen the captain's raft, abandoning the search only when the Coast Guard arrived and took over. That night, I had a nightmare of the light growing closer and closer, and every time its glow was about to hit me, I'd feel a pressure in my head like it was about to explode, and a searing, burning pain on my skin. Then I'd wake up drenched in sweat. I work as a trucker, now, a mercifully landlocked job. I drive through all kinds of creepy locations. I've seen some things on this job, but nothing has ever scared me more than the light I saw that terrible night. I don't know if it's because of the lack of closure around the captain's raft, or if my subconscious saw something that it felt my brain was better off not knowing. I don't know. I don't like to think about it. But now that I've written this, I think I can finally move on in a way. I still keep in touch with Greta. She's still working out there. Perhaps to her for getting back on that seahorse. She now captains her own vessel. Couldn't be happier for her, but sometimes when we're catching up, she talks about that night, and she always follows it up by saying another ship's been lost in that same area. I think they're up to five now. No survivors, although the final transmission of one of the ships mentioned seeing a light on the horizon. Sailors have come to avoid what they're calling the Alaska Triangle. Part of me wishes I knew conclusively what's happening out there, but I'm mostly glad I'm here on solid ground, far from the light. everyone i hope you enjoyed tonight's stories if i had to pick a favorite from tonight definitely the second one um i if you don't know already i've talked about this a couple times but i am absolutely terrified of the open sea i'm terrified of water i'm terrified of anything that's in it this stems from a couple things mostly it comes from my kinophobia, which is just the fear of voids or empty spaces. That's why I don't like space either. <laughs> when those James Webb telescope photos came out, I was incredibly impressed by what we were able to do, but I also didn't look at it for too long because it made me feel very small and very scared. And that's the same way I feel when it comes to just the sea or the ocean in general. The beach isn't that bad. Because, like, there's normally people there. But, like, when I think, like, for this story, for example, a boat just out in the middle of nowhere in the ocean and there's nothing but water all around you, that is terrifying to me. And you pair that with some strange light that has, seems to have no origin, no explanation, makes it even worse. Um, so let me know which one you thought was your favorite in the comment section below. And two questions, actually, for tonight. What are you most afraid of? What is your biggest fear? I would say mine would be voids or empty spaces or the sea, if you want to get specific. And would you ever go on a deep-sea fishing trip for, like, 
two or three weeks just out on the ocean, no one around, just you and your crew. Would you do it? Because I definitely would not. (laughs) It's definitely not something I even think about doing. So let me know that in the comment section below. And while you're doing that, I'm going to give a quick thank you to all of our $5 patrons and members. Thank you to Absinthe Alice, Amethyst, Amet, Ann Berry, Bubbly Panda, Caroline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Frankie Brockway, Furious Weasel, If and Down Flat Out, Jennifer Dameron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justine Zaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Kathy Fanning, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Mindy Bannon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Masks, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, Nuan Gum 24, Tiger Princess, Tish Love, Triumph, and Victoria Step. Thank you all for the amazing continued support. I hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. And as always, take care of yourselves and everyone around you. Good night, everyone.